you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 5. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. This will be week 2 in our study in the Sermon on the Mount. What I hoped to press in last Sunday's sermon was this. Who we are in Christ is radically different than who we were out of Christ. The kingdom of Jesus is radically different than the kingdom of this world. And the way we view the world around us is now radically different because of the radical change that has taken place in us by the gospel. Y'all tracking with me? Now, I want to press on this again for just a moment. Who we are in Christ is radically different than who we were out of Christ. The kingdom we now belong to in Jesus is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. And the way we view the world around us is now radically different because we are citizens of the kingdom now operating under the power and the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to live lives that are distinct and in some respects separate from the world around us. Not conforming to the things of this world, but being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is, walking with him in the light as he is in the light. Now, if you weren't convinced of how different Christ's kingdom is versus the kingdom of this world, you should have been, I would hope you would have been, after our look at the Beatitudes last Sunday morning. So we begin reading. I want us to go back to verse 1 of chapter 5 and read those verses again as the introduction to what we'll study in verses 11 through 16 this morning. And I want you to note again how remarkably different what Jesus describes is from the way we often see the world or think about the world, how this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, often functions. If you found your way to Matthew 5 and verse 1, I'd like to invite you to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, here's what the Bible says. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they'll be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then note what Jesus does, personalizing the Beatitudes in verse 11. He says, you are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. 
No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Note again how radically different what Jesus describes in the Beatitudes is from the way we often think. We talked just briefly last week about the way we've created this false distinction between the religious concept of blessing or blessed and the idea of human happiness. We know what happiness looks like. You can read that experience into what Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek or the gentle, as described here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And even blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Happy are those, Jesus says, who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek, not the self-assertive, not those with high self-esteem who elbow their way to the front. No, blessed are the meek, Jesus said. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Not those who bear no mercy, pressing their way through the crowd to the front of the line they go. No, happy are the merciful, Jesus says. Happy are the pure in heart, those who would forego the fleeting passions and pleasures of this life. For what we have in Jesus, those folks, Jesus says, are happy. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the troublemakers, but happy are the peacemakers, And even happier those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, I won't preach last week's sermon again, but I do want you to take note that what Jesus describes there is so radically different from the way this world functions or operates or even the way we regard the world around us that it might lead us to the conclusion that what Jesus has now called us to is this kind of lifestyle like a monk, that we would withdraw from society altogether crawl into a cave somewhere, pull the mouth closed and live there apart from the temptation and the difficulties and the challenges of the world around us. But that is not at all what Jesus intends. And that becomes clear in verses 11 and 12. In fact, if there's anything clear from verses 11 and 12, the first two verses of this week's text, it is that biblical Christianity is a call to separate, yes, but not withdraw from the world around us. Again, Jesus personalizes the Beatitudes in verse number 11, saying, You are blessed, you are happy when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. That is, you have so divorced yourselves from the things of this life, even your earthly flesh, in favor of an attachment to Jesus and an everlasting kingdom. That your joy, that your happiness, that your blessedness is not infringed upon even when physical persecution comes to your door. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. 
Now, it's an unfortunate reality that we have to make a distinction between being persecuted and being persecuted in Jesus' name. Some of us are quite adept at creating circumstances under which we are rightly persecuted. Being persecuted for being a jerk is not the same as being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But Jesus says that when you are persecuted and when all manner of evil is uttered against you falsely on his account, blessed are you. For a variety of reasons. One, there's sort of a note of affirmation that comes with that, right? The scripture says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In our cultural context where persecution is such a rarity, so many Christians are inventing persecution at every turn, there's sort of a note of affirmation that comes with some hardship in following faithfully after Jesus. When persecution comes to our door, it can serve as a word of affirmation that we're on the right course, that we're headed in the right direction, that we're on the right track. But beyond that, there is no concern for the well-being of the flesh in this area or in this regard because our hope is fixed on Jesus. We have looked beyond the physical to the eternal and what we have in Christ. If, if, you, if you go to the field to serve in some way, and I, I, hope, I hope that you will, the fascinating thing is that where, where we often go, I can remember in the early days of walking with Jesus and beginning to be involved in international missions and reading biographies of Christian missionaries who had suffered woefully and experienced such horrible things and then going to serve alongside people who were serving in the same context who I expected to be people who were living with this constant state of doom and gloom and regarding their circumstances as heavy and hard to bear with, that there was just a joy about them in Jesus. Jesus, because again, they had exchanged this life for a life that is to come. H however, I want you to note that we're not talking about a happiness that only comes in the there and then, but a happiness that is ours in the here and now as the great exchange is made, as we trade this life for life in Christ. There is joy that cannot be infringed upon that comes with that. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and utter evil against you for my sake. Jesus says in verse 12, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that's how they persecuted the prophets who are before you. When persecution comes your way, you stand in a long and noble legacy of faithful men and women who have pressed forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ and in doing so have been mistreated for their good doing. I, I, th I think there needs to be a greater degree of expectation on our part that we will face hardship and challenges when we're about kingdom advancing business. I noted a, a moment ago that it's such a rarity in our cultural context to experience persecution that some Christians are inventing or creating persecution in their own experience. I, I, I find that often to be insulting toward those who are facing real experience around the world. Be careful about what you call persecution. It may, it may be no more than a minor inconvenience. And I would almost guarantee you'd trade your minor inconveniences for the very real persecution experienced around the world as Christians gather this morning, this, on this Lord's Day, while we celebrate here in absolute freedom, there are Christians huddled whispering their praises out of fear of an oppressive government or a village people that might come and carry their families away. 
Blessed are you, Jesus says, when they revile and persecute you. I wonder what it says about Christianity as it's practiced in America that we operate without fear of persecution when the Bible has clearly noted that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer such. I, I don't know what the answers to that question are, but it's cause for some reflection at least. So Jesus has pointed out here in verses 11 and 12 that in response to this radical new kingdom worldview, we don't withdraw. Rather, we press in to what may even be persecution as we involve ourselves with the world around us. Now, this concept goes further in verses 13 through 16. In verse 13, Jesus uses the first of two metaphors here. He uses salt first and then light later in the text to describe how we are to function or to operate in the world around us. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? We don't need a great deal of explanation as to what the illustration means. Salt has two functions. Salt makes food taste good. Amen? Salt makes whatever it's applied to better than it was before. And although this is not as commonly practiced in the age of electric refrigeration, in times past it was used as a strong preservative for a variety of foods, not the least of which was meat. So salt makes things better and it preserves them. What Jesus is describing here is that Christians are supposed to make the world around them better. And the presence of Christians has a preserving effect on the world around them. And we see this in a couple of places in the scripture. In Genesis 18, God comes to Abraham and in the process of their sharing fellowship together, reveals to Abraham that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. Abraham has a direct interest in the well-being of the people of Sodom as his relative Lot is now a citizen of that perverse city. And Abraham says to God, would you destroy that city if you found 30 righteous people there? And God says, for the sake of those 30 righteous men, I would spare the city. And Abraham says, would you spare the city for 20 men, 20 righteous men? And God says, for the sake of 20 righteous men, I would spare the city. And then Abraham says, how about 10? And God says, for the sake of 10 righteous men, I'd spare the city. The presence of righteous men might have spared the city from the judgment of God that so clearly fell against them. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul describes a scenario in which an unbelieving spouse ought to remain with, or a believing spouse ought to remain with an unbelieving spouse because the presence of a single believer within a family unit has a sanctifying effect, the Bible says, on the whole family, even when there are unbelievers within that family. Christians have a persevering effect on their surrounding world. But, but more than that, we ought to have a preserving effect on the world around us in an eternally significant way. We, we may, by virtue of our presence, stave off the judgment of God in our surrounding world. But more than that, we, we want to have a preserving effect eternally in the lives of those around us, sharing the good news of the gospel with them. 
Now note that Jesus says, not only are you the salt of the world, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. The ability of salt to to make better and to preserve is entirely reliant upon its maintaining the chemical makeup of salt. In other words, you can't be salt if you're not salt. If the salt is going to have its intended effect, if it's going to improve the taste of the food, it's go- if it's going to preserve the food to which it is applied, it has to maintain the chemical makeup of salt. We are to be pressing into the world around us, influencing the world in a positive way and having a preserving effect on the world. But when the world begins to seep its way into the salt and the makeup of the salt is itself changed, it is no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. That is, it is to be cast aside in the ancient context when the salt had done all that it could do, when the substance to which it had been applied had so seeped into the salt that it was no longer good for making better, no longer good for preserving, it was thrown into the streets to be trampled under people's feet. Now, in essence, Jesus is saying, That if you want to be salt in the world, if you want to make the world better, if you want to have a preserving effect, you can't be like the world. You can't adapt to the substance that you're supposed to be preserving and improving. If, If you want to make your meat better, you don't put more meat on it, although that doesn't sound like a bad idea. You put seasoning on it. If, if you want to make the world better, you don't put more world on it. You put the gospel on it. You put salt to the world that has a preserving and improving effect. You are the salt of the world. But the moment in time in which the, you become like the world, you become ineffective in improving or preserving the world around you. Now let's think for a moment about how we can be salt about how we can make the world better. I think it's clear enough in the context of Matthew's gospel that what is intended here is that we share the message of the gospel everywhere we go. That we tell other people about the truth of the gospel that their lives would be changed. That's how we do it. That's how you can be salt. That's how you improve the world around you. That's how we preserve the world around us through the proclamation of the gospel. Y'all tracking with me? I'm, I'm not sure. How we do it, how we can be salt, and for that matter, how we can be light is by sharing the message of the gospel. That means that this is of first importance. And you have no reasonable expectation to think that the world is going to be changed by any other means than sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, y'all ready for Brother Wade to meddle a little bit? Y'all going to be mad at me when I'm done, but I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Now, I want you to be careful that you hear what I do say and that you do not hear what I do not say. But I want you to know Listen to me carefully. 
you have no reasonable expectation to think that this country is going to vote its way out of the disaster that it's in. You have no reasonable expectation to think that we're going to legislate ourselves into a posture of righteousness before God. Now, I'm not telling you those things are bad. You need to be involved. You need to be voting. You need to be engaged politically. And you need to vote and you need to engage in a way that's consistent with Christian convictions. There's no doubt about that. But some of you are far more passionate about your candidate of choice than you are the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's just no doubt about that. I, here, here, for reflection, think with me for a moment. When is the last time that you shared the message of the gospel with someone else? Now, when is the last time you had a passion-filled conversation about your candidate of choice? I'm telling you, we will not legislate our way out of death in sins and trespasses. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. And woe be unto us if we let anything supplant the primacy of gospel advancement in our heart, in our life, or in our church. This is where it's at. The message of the gospel is the only means of raising the dead in sins and trespasses to life in Christ Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, the Bible says. But once the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, it won't. It's only good at that point to be cast aside and trampled underfoot by men. The believer's presence has the effect of preserving the surrounding world. Here's the third thing I want you to see. The believer's life provides direction to the surrounding world. Look to verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is to say, the Christian life is to be a beacon to the world around us, that we are to live such a distinctively Christian ethic in our everyday experience that the world around us knows how to well interpret the message of the gospel. You heard the, the phrase, the saying, more is caught than is taught. This is true, right? Now, I'm the preacher, and so obviously I have a high regard for preaching. I, I think it is among the most noble tasks that a man can undertake to perform. And I value the importance of preaching it, shaping my life and the lives of, of those under my care as a pastor. But I'm, I'm not convinced that it has a greater bearing on those under my care than the way other brothers and sisters within the context of the local church live their life more is called than is taught. I had a remarkable pastor in my home church. I, I can still write you outlines from the sermons that he preached faithful. When I, when I was called to ministry and heard about expository preaching, I didn't know there was anything else. When I was saved in our church, my pastor was preaching on a Sunday night through 1 Peter. When God called me to ministry and sent me out from that church, my pastor was still preaching an expositional series of sermons from 1 Peter on, on Sunday. It's, all, it's just all I ever knew. And for his excellence in preaching and his knack for being memorable, I learned far more by observing him 
interacting with his wife, with his children, and the world around than I ever did when he was standing behind the pulpit. Brothers and sisters, what you do with your life makes an eternal difference in the world around us. I'll tell you something else. What you do with your life shapes the way people hear you when you share with them the message of the gospel. What you do with your life collectively as a body shapes the way people hear me and hears the church when we speak of the message of the gospel. You know why repentance is such a distasteful thing in our culture, why there's such misunderstanding about the message of the gospel? Because they've listened to so many churches for so many years say repent and believe while the church itself was not repenting or believing. They don't know what to think. This is the message, but I see something that is so clearly different in the lives of those who call themselves Christians. What do we do with this message? Surely it must mean that we give lip service to this message while never allowing that our lives conform to the expectations Jesus establishes for us in the gospel. I'm telling you, then it's taught. It's true with our kids. It's, it's true within the context of the local church, and, and it's true within our cultural context as a lost and dying world is observing the church in all of our interactions, evaluating how they themselves measure up against the standard of God. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. This is back to the idea of right? Jesus wants that the city be well lit on a hill so that all can see. The idea is be visible. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, how do we balance this with what Jesus says just verses later in Matthew 6, 1? Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. How can we reconcile that with what Jesus describes? How do we reconcile this with what Jesus says regarding giving? Sound no trumpet before you when you give to the needy. Or how about prayer when Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites who love to pray in the synagogues and on the street corners or who prattle on repetitively, believing they'll be heard for their many words. The idea here is not that we're standing before the world beating our chest so the world will applaud us for our righteousness. No, Jesus seems to expect that persecution will come as a consequence of our faithfulness to him. The idea is that we live out a distinctly Christian ethic in all of our ways. When I, when I read again the Beatitudes, and I've, I've almost regretted treating them in a single sermon in the past few days that we didn't take more time to plow through the depths of what Jesus is describing in those Beatitudes. Not, not only do I find that my actions should conform to Jesus's expectation, but even emotionally, I ought to conform to Jesus's expectation. And, and often that's a great gauge, right? When you begin to see yourself is radically different in the gospel. His kingdom is radically different than the kingdom of this world. And our lives, our worldview now radically different as a result of that change in our life and kingdom citizenship. It, it, it does change our actions, the things we do, the things we say, the places that we go, yes, yes, and yes. But maybe as much as anything, and this could be a powerful testimony at this hour, at the present hour, as much as anything, it, cha it changes our emotions, right? 
Like when we, when we have a kingdom worldview, all of our anxieties are cast away. When, when we have a kingdom worldview, our fear subsides. When we have a kingdom worldview, there's no reason for us to be wringing our hands, right? The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. He rules and reigns over all things. Like my objective in this life is to share the gospel and nothing can take that away from me. Nothing can stop that. No matter what happens to our body, no matter what happens in this existence, no matter what they do in Jackson or in D.C., no matter what happens in our neighborhood or in my personal finances, no matter what happens to my physical body or even within my family, no matter what happens, nothing can stop me in the pursuit of the face of Jesus Christ because in the end it's his pursuit of me this is where joy and happiness and peace are to be found again divorcing ourselves from the things of this world and wedding ourselves to the kingdom of the son of God's great love this is it this is it this is it salt and light You are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill, a preserving agent in the world that makes everything you touch a little better than it could have been apart from you. This is who we are, radically different people because we've been saved by the power of the gospel. In a radically different kingdom, a kingdom that is and a kingdom that is to come, ruled, mind you, by an everlasting king. With a different worldview, we see things differently now. I'm just afraid sometimes that far too often, rather than being conformed to the image of Jesus, we allow ourselves to be conformed to the things of this world. And that can't take your salvation away, right? As a a Christian, there are going to be seasons in our life when we allow our eyes to get off of the eternal things and on the physical things. There are circumstances that make it more difficult for us to see through this earthly facade toward what heaven holds forth for us. Like, I get that. That's my personal experience as well. I'm preaching to the pastor now. I I get that. But, But when we allow that that happens, when we yield to that, Oh, we rob ourselves of the fullness of joy that God intends for us. Check your New Testament. How many New Testament letters write to encourage the church that they would not be robbed of the joy that God intends for us? One of the most effective ways that we might be the salt and the light of the world would be to to be the most joyous, happy, glad-hearted people that the world had ever seen, regardless of what's going on around us, right? Standing out in front of the dumpster fire, we're just glad-hearted and joyous in Jesus Christ. And frankly, often, recently, we're standing out in front of the dumpster fire, right? But the dumpster fire can't take away what Jesus has done for us. This life will soon pass for all of us. For every single one of us, this life will pass. The beauty you enjoy at this moment, it's going away. The talent, the physical strength, the ability that you have, it's all going away. This this building, this place, it's all going away. But what we have in Jesus is eternal. Live like you know it. Be salt and light. And may the world know how radically different we are. Because of an amazing grace that has been extended us through the only begotten Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ.